You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. SpyCast's sole purpose is to educate our listeners about the past, present and future of intelligence and espionage. Every week, through engaging conversations, we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. We talk to spies, operators, mole hunters, defectors, analysts and authors to explore the stories and secrets, tradecraft and technology of the secret world. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Honestly, in my 30 years, um, at CIA, there were probably less than two handfuls of days I woke up and wasn't excited about going to work. This week's guest had a fascinating career that took him to six continents. After leaving the CIA, John Mullen was an entrepreneur, co-founding his own quantum computing company, and he now works for strategic intelligence company Strider Technologies as an executive vice president. In this week's episode, we discuss becoming addicted to adrenaline rushes while in the CIA, how growing up in Seattle made him cast his eye east to Asia and the Pacific, Chinese corporate espionage, and the commonalities between being a CIA case officer and an entrepreneur. If you have enjoyed SpyCast in 2022, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Guests this year have included ex-CIA Director and Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, Head of NATO Intelligence David Cattler, former Head of the Columbia Navy Admiral Wills, and former State Department Intelligence Chief Ellen McCarthy. We work hard to bring you the best guests here on the podcast Real Spies Listen To, SpyCast. We hope you enjoy this week's show. Okay, well, I'm so excited to speak to you, John, and there's so much that I want to dig into. You've got such a rich and varied career, but the first thing that I wanted to ask, and I was thinking about this uh, and on, on the way driving in here this morning, 
when you were in the CIA, you're out in other countries, you're trying to recruit agents, you're trying to evade surveillance by hostile intelligence agencies quite often. It sounds like a lot of stress and a lot of drama. And I guess I just wondered what's more stressful, <laughs> being a cyber executive uh, entrepreneur setting up your own company or your time in government uh, out in the streets of other countries trying to recruit and run agents? Oh, easily. Uh, startup. More difficult, more stressful. Uh, it's interesting you say that because uh, honestly, in my 30 years um, at CIA, there were probably less than two handfuls of days I woke up and wasn't excited about going to work. And I didn't feel stress. I was certainly hyped about what I was doing. I think I became addicted to adrenaline rushes over the years, frankly. But um, and you certainly have those in the private sector with startups. But the difference is when you're at CIA, you have professional logisticians, analysts, uh, business specialists, accountants, everybody else doing all these little things for you, legal advisors, obviously. It's a team. And when you're in a startup, it's bare bones and it's all on you. Everything from scheduling your own travel to your hotel accommodations to your bookkeeping uh, to finding the right kind of attorneys and others to help, it's all on you. There's no HR team. There's no point person necessarily when you're first starting to kind of ask to kind of take that on. So it's different. And do you think that there's any, you know, you set up your own company do you think that there's any commonalities between being an entrepreneur and being a CIA case officer? I mean, it seems to me just from the outside that being a case officer, sure, there's a structure and there's support, but you have to kind of grow your own network. You have to do your own legwork. You have to go out there and hustle and be entrepreneurial and, and connect and so forth. Uh, yeah. How much commonality is there between both of those experiences? Uh, a lot of commonality. Uh, common sense, uh, personal drive, motivation, uh, the idea to kind of have the logical framework about what your objective is, work back from that, say, what steps do I need to take to kind of achieve that objective, deal with problems as they arise, anticipate those to the extent you can, have a plan B mapped out to the extent you can, and just follow through and execute. So it's very similar. And the personality type um, is, I think, in many ways common, a successful personality type, I should say. Uh, is common. And just from your own network, do you know if that's quite a common thing to happen for people to leave the CIA and start their own companies? Well, I do see a lot of former agency people doing it. Sometimes they're starting their own consulting services. Sometimes they get into technology. Um, depends on their, their background, their expertise. Um, I am not what you call a software developing uh, genius by any stretch. I don't pretend to be. I'm not a, a quantum computing specialist. I'm not an edge computing specialist. I know intelligence. I had a degree in chemistry back in the day. Um, so I've always been intrigued by uh, quantum mechanics and the potential there for huge advances in quantum uh, technology uh, in the computing realm and what that may mean for national security and healthcare and other things. But I think it's recognizing who you are, what your strengths are, and playing to those and uh, understanding when you're building a team in the private sector, the kind of people that are compliment, going to complement uh, what you lack. Because we all think that we're superstars. We're not. We have blind spots, weaknesses, 
areas where we think we can fake it, but not smart to ever do that. Uh, admit the fact you don't know something and turn over to the experts and have them advise you on it. And just on a couple of those terms that you mentioned there, so our audience ranges from people that just love a good old-fashioned spy story to people that are working the desk of, of an issue at one of the intelligence agencies through to people that are in cyber and they're dipping a toe into SpyCast. So that's a few different audiences there, but just for the ones that are not up to speed with this, can you just, the uh, Cliff Notes version, what is quantum uh, and what is edge computing, just so we're not leaving anyone behind? Sure. Quantum computing, the startup I'm involved in is just quantum-inspired computing. So we're not using huge cryogenic devices to get ions or uh, molecular uh, articles down to absolute zero to kind of do these quantum calculations, which is true quantum. Quantum-inspired is taking digital technology, in our case, what we call a true digital icing machine, don't ask me to try and explain that. Take the rest of the next hour <laughs> to get uh, highly efficient and easily scalable solutions into the hands of commercial industry and others to do quantum-like problem sets. Um, so what that means is it's cheaper. It's easier to integrate with existing um, computer architecture. And it's greener. It doesn't require huge amounts of energy to get these systems down to absolute zero or some uh, really cold state to kind of get these machines to work. So this has applications from everything from gaming, uh, AR, VR, to um, banking, financial modeling, to molecular modeling, which is designing pharmaceuticals, for example, without going through the trial of error and say, oh yeah, we've got to tell you that you may take this for your eczema, but it may give you a heart attack in the process. I mean, it's easier to articulate as you go through this, the research what may cause side effects and what doesn't mitigate those with the design of the, the pharmaceutical you have in mind. Edge computing is different. It's, it's kind of an older technology, but when you think of the fact that the laptop you're probably looking into and the one I'm looking into right now has the, the iPhones we use, uh, the Samsung phones we use. Uh, any personal digital assistant, any mainframe, has at any given time about 72% of its computing power not being used. The CPU, central processing units in current modern computers, are so powerful compared to what we had even 10, 20 years ago that they have extra bandwidth that's not being used. So what edge computing attempts to do is take that 70, 72% of computing power that's just sitting there and use it as you're doing your other work in the background to do calculations. So for example, we could provide an edge computing solution to a major bank. Uh, they could donate that computing power on all their mainframes and, and systems in their bank headquarters, say in New York City, to a cancer research center. They can't afford that. Uh, the cancer research center can lend, uh, could, can borrow that computing power, that space in the background as the bank does its all, all of its other businesses do its research and a bank gets tax credit for it, or if they chose to do so, charge the Cancer Research Center. That's just one tangible example. So um, it's got tremendous promise, not just in reducing the, the financial obligation that people incur when they try and look at developing big data solutions through big tech. It makes it far easier for researchers, PhD graduates anywhere in the world to kind of log on and get their work done and not have to pay one of the big tech companies, huge amounts of money. It's out of the reach to get that done. Mm -hmm. 
Wow. And I feel like I've got a good understanding of edge computing. And again, I don't want to get into quantum too much, but just when you mention cryogenic and so forth, this is basically that to do quantum compute, computing, you need to have a very specialized set of conditions under which to do it, which involves a lot of a lot of capital, a lot of investment, a lot of work and a lot of energy. That's very true. And uh, a lot of people are working on it. And depending on who you talk to, uh, we may not have a, a few, a real quantum capability for eight years or so. Some say 15, some say longer, uh, some say never. There are some optimists that say we'll have it imminently. Uh, I don't know who to believe there exactly, but there are opinions all over the place. And uh, we'll see. Uh, but quantum computing is not going to be a panacea. It can't solve all these problems. But certainly in the national security realm, just to take one example. I mentioned molecular modeling for design of pharmaceuticals is one powerful example. Financial modeling is another. Take every conceivable scenario under the sun economically that could happen and kind of see how your investment may do. I mean, banks care about that, obviously. Investors care about that. Um, but in the national security realm, it's got tremendous potential, both good and bad. So a lot of people are working on it from across the spectrum of industries to try and get there first. And and for the like quantum computing, um, as I understand it, just for some of our listeners, it basically if you think about cryptography, so encrypting and decrypting messages and information, a quantum computer would just be able to do calculations at an, you know, an order of magnitude way beyond even the most powerful computers just now. So, so basically the takeaway would be that the most difficult code to break into would then become difficult, uh, would, would then become easy to get into. So this is why there's so much invested in national security and looking at this kind of problem. Is that correct? That's correct. That's why you see uh, various press announcements and articles about U.S. government entities getting ahead of this and encouraging industry to think of a post-quantum world and uh, protecting their encryption schemes accordingly. So they're developing standards for that, doing good work in that realm. And just super briefly before we move on, uh, quantum mechanics, you say you studied that. Just for our listeners again, but like, what's a sentence on quantum mechanics? What is it? Why does it matter? Well, I was taking it in a, in a graduate chemistry course, an honors course, my last year as an undergraduate. And uh, it really hit me between the eyes when they said, look, you know, we, we talk about electrons being particles, part of a molecule, obviously, any molecule, holding a negative charge and getting into what they are. And you think of a finite little dot, uh, but they also behave like waves. There's something called the Heisenberg uncertainty principle you roll into this. He said, it's impossible the more accurately you try and measure the state or position of uh, an object, in this case, a, uh, an electron, to do that perfectly because the very act of observation disrupts the, the uh, state of the electron. So in short, with quantum computing, you don't have a one and zero. You may have six, eight, 10, 12 different possible solutions you could look at in real time. And the, the goal is finding the optimum solution and go with that. But we get into the realm of, of science fiction people have been talking about since at least 1962 and various sci-fi movies. I remember I used to love Quantum Leap as a kid. Yeah, different <laughs> parallel universes came up in Star Trek and all these shows you've seen over the years. That's carrying it to, a, to a, a real, perhaps, fantastical state. But the point is, it's fascinating. 
it's it's not easy to understand uh, for for we humans that are trained in logical sequential thinking, but uh, it holds untoward unbounded promise for things like the development of medications that can treat people um, without resulting in adverse side effects and things of this nature. So people are studying it for good reason. And just as we're moving on, it's really, really fascinating to me because basically, as I understand it, it's saying that the world is not as static and linear and A leads to B and B leads to C. It's much more fluid and dynamic, uh, which I find really, really fascinating. But uh, we are so conditioned into viewing the world in a particular way that we struggle to get our heads around it. That's very true. Well, we said at the outset of this conversation, whether you're a case officer or an entrepreneur, or I can think of thousands of lines of work where this is also true, you plan for contingencies, but there are an infinite number of contingencies. So how do you kind of plan for all of it? It's impossible to do so, really, but you have to take the greatest uh, likelihood of occurrences, situations that may arise and kind of deal with those. That's the best we can do. But when you think about a large, complex diplomatic undertaking, economic initiative, military campaign, whatever, there are so many things that go into that. And it's so complex an exercise that if you had somebody kind of looking at this for the contingencies uh, and a machine capable of telling you this is my way or what may arise, you may want to contemplate this. this is obviously why artificial intelligence is, is such a huge thing. It makes those a little more easy to kind of understand and plan for. Not perfect. And then you have to trust the algorithms you built into these AI mechanisms in the first place to make sure that they're reflecting your own values and objectives and mores as you go into it. And so it, it holds both promise and potential peril. But anyway, it's all fascinating stuff. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. So you were 30 years in the CIA, you said. When when did you leave the CIA and go into the field that you're currently working in? Late 2015. 2015, okay. What's it like now that you're out? Do you, do you still have days where you're like, I wish I was, I was back on the job? Or are you like, that was a great part of my life, I'm glad it happened, and now I'm doing something different and that's okay? Or do you have mixed feelings? Uh Mixed feelings. I, you know, I'll tell you, as I said earlier, um, I loved it. I really did. I, I didn't know what I was getting into when I first applied. I was 24 at the time, uh, been working for a publishing firm, saw an ad in a newspaper for economic analysts, 
And uh, I got degrees in chemistry and English, but I thought to myself, well, I'm not an economist. I have no idea what analysts and CIA do, but this sounds pretty cool. I think I'll apply. So I, there's no long range strategic plan to be an operations officer in CIA. It just happened. Uh, so I went into it with some trepidation. And the first series of sit down interviews I had, uh, I had one in, in the Seattle area to start, a very nice individual who I'm indebted to for kind of seeing something in me that I didn't know I had. But went back to Washington. Uh, the Washington area for a series of interviews back in that year long ago. And uh, five days before getting on an airplane for those interviews, I proposed to my wife. And uh, I said, look, I think I'm going to be an analyst. My understanding is these jobs are all in the D.C. area, so it would require a move across the country. And the first interview was, so you want to be a case officer? I said, what? I said, I don't know what a case officer is. Explain that to me. I thought I was going to be an analyst. At any rate, there are two things to say there. One, I had to go back and re-recruit my wife. I had to go to Foster <laughs> all over again. <laughs> 22 moves in 30 years. <laughs> yeah, so it, it worked out. We've been married 37 years happily so. But the other thing to say about that is I give the agency huge credit because obviously they have a method for selection uh, of candidates uh, for security and other reasons. But they really are intent on hiring the best possible people for certain roles. And um, they do such a good job of kind of looking into you uh, and asking you questions, learning about you with um, personal interest surveys, aptitude tests, all the other things they go through. They have a pretty good feel for where you're going to be successful and enjoy it and where you may be kind of successful, but maybe not enjoy it so much. So they kind of held a mirror up to me in that process of interviews and said, look, you can do whatever you want. If you want the analyst job that we discussed earlier, you can have it, but you may want to consider this. Uh, and I'm really glad, grateful they did that. They asked hard questions, but they said, do whatever you want. They gave me an option. Uh, but if you want to enter this program, you can do that. If you want to stay in this career track, you can do that. It worked out. Wow. And I want to dig into your CIA a little bit more, but just to finish off with, Cyber is is someone that's been on both sides of it. You were in the CIA, and then you became a cyber entrepreneur. What do you think non CIA people in cyber just don't really understand about the CIA? What's the thing that you come across quite often? And you're just like, what? These people just don't get it. Uh, I think. Is there anything? I, I, yeah, I think there is. I think it's the motivation and the objective. I don't blame a lot of people for having this very dark perception of CIA and what we do. They just don't know. And we're not in the business of advertising what we do. We never will be. And it defeats the purpose. But we are a democracy. People need to know something. And I think the thing I would tell them is anything we do, certainly CIA has its share of mistakes over the years, things that didn't go right, uh, things that didn't go according to plan. But we do things within U.S. law, under the confines of U.S. law and the U.S. Constitution. And CIA officers that violate that are prosecuted uh, for good reason. So we don't take kindly to people in our midst that may want to do something that is inimical to our values or our national interest or constitution or the laws and the bylaws and the policies we have to uphold and stand by. But I think getting back to your question I think a lot of people probably think of CIA as doing the same kind of ransomware attacks and, and willy-nilly hacking that people around the globe do. 
We don't do that. Okay. We, we're, we're trying just as we do with all the other ints that we either do or support on the part of our IC partners. The goal here is to illuminate uh, what we think is unknown or unclear to mitigate risk. Mitigate risk to our economy, mitigate risk to, to lives, human lives, American lives and interests, and advance our cause around the world, the values that uh, we hold so dear. So I think that's the biggest thing. And that sounds Pollyannish to some people. Some people choose not to believe it, but that's true. And uh, when you go through the training and you go through things you learn over the course of years, how do you handle digital data about U.S. persons? I mean, there are procedures and protocols you have to adhere to. And if not, you're liable to be prosecuted. Nobody wants to face that. We take those things very seriously. And before we move on to your CIA career in more depth, just to leave off, when did cyber come on your radar, John? Were you already very much enmeshed and interested in this field before you left the CIA or was it a, a road to Damascus conversion afterwards? Or I'm just trying to understand the timeline of you joining up and then 30 years in the CIA. When, did, when does it come on your radar and when do you start to develop this interest in it? Uh, I can point to the date. I won't give you the, the specific environment or surroundings. That's all quite sensitive still, but I had heard of it. I'd undergone training sessions about vulnerabilities and so on prior to that and what adversaries, um, criminals, whomever can do on the internet, how you have to protect yourself and your data and whatnot. Uh, but it was really brought home to me on an assignment when I was a chief of station and uh, we're involved in something where it really required knowing what the potential of this adversary was, uh, their capabilities, and what they claimed to be doing. And then engaging with people back in the United States, looking at cyber defense and talking to them and, and kind of showing them that uh, in that particular instance, the confidence with which the ultimate protecting party had put forward said, oh, we're, we can block this. We're way, we're, <laughs> that turned out not to be true. So we underestimate our adversaries to our own detriment sometimes. That was an example of that, but it really brought it home. It was gratifying to be part of an operation like that. But the point I'm making is there are experiences, unless you go through them, you can't really understand or appreciate the impact of this stuff. And that I had one of those relatively early on in my career, and I, I'm grateful for that. So when you leave the CIA, uh, you're the assistant director for the Asia Pacific region and you're over, it sounds like, I mean, it's a lot of responsibility because it's such a huge re region, but all collection, technical support and analysis. So I just wondered, as a segue into your time uh, in the CIA, was there any intentionality in appointing you to this specific geographic region? Had you spent a lot of time in Asia and the Pacific, is that was that with the place that you were known as a bit more of a specialist in, or yeah, how does this kind of thing work? I was born and raised in the Seattle area, and I didn't have any immediate family members that worked at Boeing. But you can't live in Seattle, at least back when I grew up, and not see the installations and hear the stories about the production of B twenty nine bombers and everything else that went on, and how the city was blacked out. Uh, they had Boeing factories under camouflage nets the outset of the war for fear of a Japanese attack on the mainland. People grew up with that. And these were my family members, my, my grandmother, grandfather, great uncle, and so on. The other part is uh, 
in terms of my wife and my family, we had two people killed in the Pacific theater in World War II. And I, and a great uncle of mine served in the Army Air Corps on Saipan and Tinian when the first atomic bomb was dropped. The bomb? Yeah, so uh, having those conversations with people that survived, not the ones obviously I never met, and the family members, survivors, it's just so, such an impact. You know, the Asia Pacific has, has always been a huge challenge. And you look at things that didn't go so well, right? I mean, we prevailed in the Korean War in terms of our political objectives. That was a bloody battle, and it proved that a land war in Asia is something no one ever wants to get into. You know, Vietnam kind of underscored that. As much as the original cause may have been noble, it's just a huge area. And I just thought that given the economic dynamism out there, it's, it's going to be the future. And I bet right. Wow. So you had always been Pacific-minded growing up in Seattle? Yeah, it's not that I didn't pay attention to what was going on in Europe or the Soviet Union sure. uh, at the time. Uh, very interested in that, but um, it's just my background. It's just that's where I was, and I, I just felt that sometimes we we focus on other issues in the world. This is true at any stage, I think, as policymakers, and I give them uh, credit. They have a lot to to consider, a lot to work on at any given time, and these issues are extraordinarily complex. But the uh, the temptation to follow the shiny object is very great sometimes. And currently, the shiny object may be the Ukraine and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And that is getting the attention it needs. I'm not suggesting it, it gets, it's getting too much. But the challenge is looking at other uh, issues across the globe that could come back and bite us if you're not careful. And you have to maintain collection, a steady posture on that, and with a policy that obviously is geared toward mitigating risk, not just the United States, but our allies, and advancing our interests. It's interesting that you say that about your family. I also have two great uncles who died in the war in the East, and one of them is buried in Yokohama in Japan. He was captured at the fall of Hong Kong in Christmas Day 1941, and the other one's buried in what's now Bangladesh, but I believe he was in the war in Burma. So I think it's kind of interesting to me that a couple of men from this small rainy island in the northwest of Europe are are buried so far from home and one day I hope to go to visit their graves. But I think it's just a, a fascinating and huge theatre, right? I mean, you could spend a whole lifetime and never really get your head around it. Yeah, my uh, my wife's side of the family, um, my father-in-law's brother was killed in a Pacific theatre in 1943 and uh, was part of an Oregon National Guard that was called up uh, ultimately ingested in the 25th Infantry Division and uh, literally killed at his foxhole. foxhole. This is early in the war when he, his unit ran out of ammunition, bayoneted to death and then shot. Nobody from the family, including my father-in-law, had ever visited his gravesite. He was buried in the U.S. Uh, cemetery in, in Manila in the Philippines. So we traveled there, borrowed a, a friend's camcorder, recorded it. And uh, that was a very powerful moment. We took it home that summer and shared it to him. That's the first time I've ever seen his gravesite. That, that's what I'd like to do with my great uncles. As far as I know, no one with a blood connection has ever been to their graves. Uh, and I'd like to do them both in the one trip. But yeah, that's that's definitely going to happen. But it's not happening this year. And what what was your favorite role out of all the ones that you had in the CIA? So case officer, 
the chief of station, the person that's in charge of the other case officers that are more junior, uh, assistant director. You had a whole variety of different positions uh, across the CIA and up and down the hierarchy. What really was your bag? If you if you could go back and have a weekend, one of the roles, which one would you go back to? Boy, that's a hard question to answer. Uh, <laughs> I, I'll just take one, each one in turn, okay? As an ops officer, I don't know if there's a better feeling professionally in the world than coming back on your homeward route after a, a meeting with a, a sensitive clandestine source that you've met with, a person you're obligated to protect and, and see to his or her welfare. Uh, having just been provided detailed information you know is going to change U.S. policy or at least impact it and, and or save American lives. That's just, that is such a rush. And you can't sleep that night when you get home because you're so eager to go in and write it up. That is a special feeling. Um, and I know that the people you work with that get that intelligence prepared, disseminated properly, read uh, back and forth questions and follow on requirements, go back and ask more questions. People share that. It's a genuine rush. You know you're having an impact. That is a special feeling. The same holds true as a, as a chief of station uh, because you're overseeing people with sometimes a variety of experiences, first two officers, some with more experience, some with managerial responsibilities. So you have to play the role of mentor, manager, supervisor, and leader. And um, mind the P's and Q's, make sure that the quality of your work, the, the operational tradecraft, uh, what you're focusing on in terms of intelligence production is impactful. It's your, you're not putting out things that are ancillary in terms of interest of the day. That's, that's a challenge, more sophisticated challenge. Such a director, you're looking at a variety of countries in theater. You have to be proficient to a certain level in understanding what's going on, a bit about the histories and cultures any interactions between those nations and their historical ties to the United States. So when you engage with uh, foreign partners in a liaison capacity, obviously informed by judgments and intelligence and smart people around you, uh, what to say, what not to say, and what to push them for in terms of what's needed for more cooperation or the advanced relationship. When they come to you with issues or problems or complaints, you have to listen to those and do your level best to address them quickly in a way that kind of allays their concerns. So it's it's all dealing with people. The one common denominator there, it's all about asking questions. And when I first came in, I'm, like most young people, I don't ask many questions. I think I know it. I thought I know it all. But when you ask questions, uh, you learn things about the individual and his or her motivations and their values that that really provide elements of the solution that you have to kind of propose for going forward. And uh, in each one of those roles, I learned the value of asking really good questions. And when you think you know something, keep asking more questions because there's, there's always something else to uncover there. That experience that you first mentioned there on the way home and uh, being, you know, having the thrill of meeting a, a clandestine source and getting intelligence that will be useful for your country. It sounded to me a little bit like scoring the winning goal and a World Cup final, but you can't really like shout about it. You have to keep it to yourself and a few a few other people that are allowed to know about it. That's very true. That's very <laughs> true. And you know that going in. The more that you engage in that work, uh, whether you're an operations officer or um, 
an analyst, a reports officer, whatever you do in CIA, if, you, if you're kind of around that, that activity, you realize that's a sacred trust and that source, um, his or her welfare is in your hands. You better make sure you're professional about it. You mind P's and Q's of the operational tradecraft you have to employ, the discipline about you know how to speak about this, where you speak about it, where you keep the documentation, how you protect it, so on. Uh, it's paramount because ultimately it's not a piece of paper. It's a person's life at the other end that's really a value. And, and is this a little bit like, it got me thinking that there's a war photographer whose work I really like, Don McCullen, and he speaks about the negatives, like for the old wet film cameras that he used to use. He kept them in shoeboxes under his bed. And he said that they almost, yeah, they kind of lived inside his soul, all of the images of the soldiers, the people in combat, people that are shell-shocked, etc. Do you find yourself just sitting reading the newspaper or sitting in the garden and then thinking about one of the sources that you worked with over the years? How? Yeah, I guess I'm asking, how much do you still carry them around with you? Are they kind of at the back of your mind or do they kind of float in and out? Or, yeah, help us understand. Yeah, no, that's true. Not in a haunting way, but some of these people you you really like, you can't afford to become emotionally attached to them because you've got to be objective in whatever they're telling you or trying to tell you. And everybody's got um, biases you have to be aware of and sensitive to. But I got to tell you, some of these people you do get close to. And um, whether or not you're personally close as a friend, you're still concerned about their welfare. It's just it's part of you. So, yeah, that, that's definitely true, I think, to an extent. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Tell us a little bit more about your role with the FBI, John. I I think that that's quite interesting. Uh, Can you tell us, listeners, a little bit more about what that role was and what it entailed? Yeah, it was a great experience. It was uh, not something I applied for. It's uh, something that uh, I was due to come back to Washington, had avoided it. Um, Operations officers, just for your audience's sake, generally don't like serving in headquarters. They want to be out in the field where most real work gets done. And I was certainly of that mindset. But um, I got a call from a very senior person in CIA. And he said, I've got good news and bad news. Uh, about your next assignment. I said, well, 
let's have the bad news first. He goes, well, you have to come back to Washington. I said, okay, I kind of figured that. So what's the good news? And he said, well, you're going to be working directly with Bob Mueller at FBI headquarters. And I paused because I hadn't anticipated that. But the first reaction was, well, I'm still waiting on the good news. <laughs> so what's good about this? At any rate, it turned out that what Director Mueller and the FBI were trying to do is become more intelligence-driven, more proactive. So think of investigations as looking in the rearview mirror. A bank is robbed, just for the sake of example here. A terrorist attack occurs. Let's collect evidence. Let's interview the suspects. Let's find out who's responsible, bring them to justice. It turns out, though, in the normal course of their activities, the FBI collects enormous amounts of information, tons of information in their files. And the real challenge is unlocking that so that you can see patterns and trends that may inform judgments about what you could look for next, to be a little more proactive in anticipating whether it's terrorist attacks, intelligence operations by adversaries in the United States, whatever it may be. So that was the challenge. It was a great experience. So uh, culture is different, uh, overlapping authorities with CIA, but great people. I've established friendships with FBI, special agents, and others there that I probably wouldn't have established otherwise. And this was after 9-11, right? It was this part yes. of the effort to try to make the CIA and the FBI being more sync with each other. Right. right. It was an interesting uh, role because uh, although I was sent by CIA, I was uh, they made it clear on both sides. I wasn't working for CIA. I wasn't their liaison officer. I wasn't their spy. Uh, matter of fact, the deputy director told me, you're not our spy over there. It's just you work for Bob Mueller and you do what he asked you to do. And I said, the best interest of the FBI. I said, okay, all right, I understood. So um, it was a good assignment. Learned a lot. And then you, and then after that, you went back to the CIA, right? Mm-hmm. Wow. And what one piece of information or what's one of the things that you learned in that position that you brought back to the CIA with you? Some insight or piece of information or how the institutions function? Never underestimate the power of an analyst with access to data of all sorts at his fingertips, ever. Because you, you may have a, a piece of classified information, whether it's from a human source, uh, a signals intelligence piece, an analytic piece that was done, whatever. I think there's still in the minds of many a bias toward classified information, but you have so much available in the open source realm that sheds light on an individual's background, connections, uh, associations, motivations that will illuminate things that um, if you ignore, you really do that to the detriment, not just of yourself, but of that individual potentially and of the operation. So that's what I learned. People with data like that can bring more to the table, not just in, in confirming uh, a piece of intelligence or adding to it or maybe slightly changing it uh, or sometimes calling it into question, but also enabling collection against things that are more fruitful. So that's a lesson you walk away from, not just from that experience, but just about every experience I walk through. And I want to go on to discuss China next, but just as we leave off uh, the CIA officer part of your um, part of the interview. I know from emails that we get that some people listen to the podcast because they want to go into this field 
If someone was listening to this podcast, what one piece of advice would you give them based on your 30 years in the agency? People that may be considering a career in intelligence? Yeah. I'm assuming it's not, don't do it. No, I, I, had, uh, I had the benefit very early in my career of having a, a legendary officer, whose name I won't provide, who was passing through a station I was working in at the time. He was going out as COS of a, of a large station. And he stopped by our office uh, and basically knew our chief there and was, I think, had family business or whatever in the area. And uh, I think our chief of station put a bug in his ear and he came into my office and I first wondered, why are you talking to me? Uh, you know, I, I knew his name. He had a sterling reputation. And he starts talking to me about what matters because he knew I, I really hadn't decided where I wanted to go next and where I wanted to focus the rest of my career. And uh, he said, look, um, my only piece of advice gratuitous as it may sound, is do something that you know is going to have an impact. Because you can put your uh, family in a place where they may not feel comfortable. Uh, you can throw yourself, your soul into work that is important, but ultimately may not matter. And I said, what do you, what do you mean may not matter? He said, that's for you to decide. Uh, Policymakers always want more of everything, right? They want more intelligence all the time. But you have to decide what matters and um, make sure you're solid with that and then you throw yourself into it. It could be counter-narcotics-related operations. It could be counter-intelligence-related. Uh, it could be related to Russia or China or terrorism, um, all those things. The extent that you have a say in your next assignment, keep that in mind. And I thought that was really, really good advice because um, when you have the ultimate objective in mind, in your own mind, it's it's easier to kind of map out the challenges involved in taking that assignment and doing that work and plan accordingly and get your family prepared as necessary. And what ultimate objective did you take out of that experience? Ultimately, that Asia is where it's at, specifically China's rise, was something we had to be very, very careful about. Okay, that's. I'm glad I asked that question because that's the perfect segue into the next part of the interview. So... Tell us a little bit more about China, John. A lot of our listeners know a lot more about Soviet Russian intelligence, the agencies, the culture, the types of things that went on, how difficult it is conducting operations there. But tell us a little bit, tell our listeners a little bit more about China and break down the US Chinese intelligence relationship, some of the issues, the strengths, the weaknesses. Yeah, just help us get our heads around it. Sorry, small question. Yeah, no, China's, China's, China's intelligence services pose a significant threat to the United States. You can see the recent joint statement by FBI Director Ray and his British uh, security service colleague, uh, unprecedented, where you have two heads of security services saying the same thing. Uh, China steals uh, just about everything they can get their hands on, they believe is useful to their economic rise and military development that they can. And uh, it seems like the more we call attention to it, uh, either in the cyber realm or the human realm or whatever, the more they do it. So that's definitely true. So certainly with the Soviet Union and now Russia and other countries have formidable uh, intelligence capabilities, but none at the scale of, of China. Uh, the one thing I'll add is they're not 10 feet tall. 
they have their weaknesses and frailties and uh, issues uh, that I'm not, I'm, I can't go into. But um, I, I think that people have to understand that, uh, especially industry, doing work with Chinese corporations or in China poses risks. I won't belabor what Director Ray and the British security chief said, but it it bears repeating that you have to be very careful um, to protect your people, your intellectual property, uh, your negotiating strategy, your business long-term strategy, knowing that they are ultimately looking to exert influence over not just the United States, but dominate certain industries. They've mapped this out. We don't have to guess at that. They've <laughs> They've been kind enough to put this in their policy documents, and they're intent on achieving those objectives. And um, if you or your business partnership with a Chinese supplier or joint venture uh, developer or R&D partner is uh, something you value, that's great. But make sure that you know what you have to protect and protect it accordingly. That's the only thing I'd say there. For our listeners as well, some of them say to me, well, are like... Why aren't we doing this back to them? Or, you know, why are we not stealing their information? And I, I know that that could easily be a whole separate podcast in and of itself. But help our listeners understand is what the Chinese are doing. Is this within the grey unwritten rules of espionage? Or is this, or are they taking it a step beyond what has traditionally been the case? Uh, they're taking it a step beyond. The Chinese are uh, engaged not just in state-on-state espionage, for example, spying on U.S. spy organizations or the FBI or the military or the State Department. I mean, the natural kind of uh, diplomatic and government contacts you'd think of or targets. Where is the line? Why are they crossing the line? I'm just thinking about a recent podcast that we had where there was a Japanese espionage network in Los Angeles and they were looking at like the Douglas Aircraft Company, other companies that were involved in America's industrial war machine, basically, is that, are, are they not doing that? Is it not just they're looking at, you know, Northrop Grumman, they're, they're also looking at real estate and medicine and other things that have nothing whatsoever to do? Is that is that what the line is? No, I, I think, that, look, you, you have to carve out a wide space for legitimate business due diligence, investment opportunities, strategies, and whatnot, knowing what your competition is up to. It's a methodology by which you do that. When you have a nation state actually doing this at behest of their national champions in industry, that is not only a, a, an egregious um, departure from uh, what we call fair trade-related practices, uh, it also uh, crosses over into economic espionage, where you're in, you're inducing people into relationships where they put themselves at legal risk. Uh, so there's a very clear distinction there. You may be a Japanese company, for example, in your analogy, looking at some competitor in Los Angeles, doing all the due diligence, interviewing people, whatever. That's not the same as suborning a human source to his ultimate detriment to get the information you really want. There's a real distinction there. Help our listeners understand as well, you know, that we hear about the Soviet Union and Russia, hard targets, denied areas. It's a very difficult place to conduct human intelligence operations. This is one of the reasons why spy satellites and the U-2 and so forth were developed. How hard is it to do conduct intelligence operations in China? 
I'm thinking of a guest that we had on a couple of years ago and he said that wherever a Westerner goes in China, they leave a wake, like the same way that a ship leaves like a wake where you can see where it's been. And, and I guess his point was that it's very difficult to conduct human intelligence operations there. And I know you can't get into specifics, but just give us a sense, how would it compare to the Soviet Union? I think they're both what we call hostile counterintelligence environments. So uh, critical CI threat posts, uh, the term used. So yeah, there's no question about that. Because, you know, if you look at what they've developed, a lot of these mechanisms aren't designed with the specific intent of thwarting foreign espionage. It's designed with the intent of controlling their own people and what they see and hear and what they do. So those tools are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. Uh, and the Chinese are scaling those and exporting those at a tremendous rate, uh, which gives everybody pause, not just when you're going to a place like China or Russia, but states that they're selling this to. So that's a legitimate concern. Everything from facial recognition technology, uh, software programs that allow you to kind of queue up people and follow them throughout the course of their activities in whatever city they may be visiting, whatever, who they're contacting, what they're posting on social media. I mean, it's pervasive. So yeah, it is a challenge. It, is it insurmountable? No. Um, and I'll just leave it at that. But uh, as I said, uh, going back a few minutes ago, the, neither the Chinese or the Russians are 10 feet tall. That's, that's not hubris talking. It just means that when you need to get the job done, it's, it can be extraordinarily difficult. you got to be painstaking your planning and discipline, but get the job done. And do you think that there's a, a Chinese way of doing intelligence? you know, informed by its history and its culture. You know, you hear of a, an American way of war or a British way of cooking. Uh, is there a Chinese way of intelligence? Well, the Chinese have uh, their own ministries, you know, roughly akin to uh, those in, in the United States or the UK or allied countries. And they do their work. But getting back to my earlier comment, they have a whole different network tied to central government authorities looking at talent and technologies and acquiring those through any means necessary. And they do it through business practices, forced tech transfer and agreements that kind of promulgate through laws they pass in China. Uh, they passed, I think, five national security laws or versions of data privacy and national security laws since 2015. So they do it legis through legislation. They do it through uh, action. They do it through engagement with partners in American industry and, and uh, Western industry intent on doing uh, work in China or selling in the Chinese market. So they exact a heavy price in those discussions. And some of them are patently unfair. Some are still under consideration by the WTO and others, but uh, they do all of that. And they supplement that with um, nothing short of uh, corporate espionage campaigns. So that's, they do all of that. So yes, they have their standard pieces that we do, but the United States, UK, none of us have anything near equivalent or uh, remotely equivalent to what they do in terms of uh, suborning human sources for economic gain. Uh, we just, it's not something we do. We don't spy on industry. And th this has been such a fascinating conversation that I could dig into each one of these topics much more um, but one of the things that I was going to ask uh, now was, uh, can we expect a, a book from you at some point or something? Or 
Are you quite happy um, doing what you're doing just now? Or what, what do you see the future holding for you now, John? Um, that's a great question. You know, my mom passed away three and a half years ago. So I, I was glad to be around, have more time to see her before she passed. My father has health issues. He turns 93 in about a week or so. So I'm intent on spending oh, wow. as much time with him as I can. You know, I, so yeah, I, I have time I didn't have before to do these things that I really want to do. Do I miss the people? Do I miss the mission? Absolutely. You know, I really do. Good friends, colleagues, uh, people I served with, some I don't know quite as well, uh, still involved in a mission. I, I wish them the very best. Do I want to rejoin them? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. That would be a that would be a really really hard decision to have, to make. Um, you know, not that I I wouldn't want to do it again, but I'm at a different phase of my life. Sorry, Director Burns, if you're listening. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not what I had in mind. But yeah, <laughs> I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak to me this morning and tell me a little bit more about your life and career thanks ever so much and the next time you're in washington please come to visit the new spy museum that opened in 2019 i've been there a couple of times i've taken a niece oh, there have? and some okay. other relatives yes yeah okay <laughs> well whenever you come back let me know and we'll grab a coffee or a beer terrific thanks andrew <laughs> i appreciate it right, thank you so much Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Go to our webpage where you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. We have over 500 episodes in our back catalogue for you to explore. Please follow the show on Twitter at INTL SpyCast and share your favourite quotes and insights or start a conversation. If you have any additional feedback, please email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at Spy Historian. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. The SpyCast team includes Mike Mincy and Memphis Vaughn III. See you for next week's show. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.